Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your tour guide through history today. And in this episode, we're going to venture on over to Eaton County and explore some of the early history of Eaton Rapids and Eaton Rapids Township. We're going to go back into the pioneer period and capture some of the lost stories from that era. So come along and join me. Now the information today that I'm going to be reading mostly from is from a book called The Pioneer History of Eaton County, Michigan from 1833 to 1866. And it was compiled by Daniel Strange. And it was part of a collection that's in the Michigan County Histories and Atlases collection part of the University of Michigan Library. And so Eaton Rapids Township, originally Eaton County with two others, was at a very early day included entirely in the township of Green. So if you can imagine that, that Eaton County plus two other counties way back before the counties were officially organized were just designated as this township of Green. And then later, the whole of Eaton County was included in the township of Bellevue. So Bellevue is the oldest township name and city in Eaton County. They first organized the county, and just like a lot of the eastern counties over towards Detroit, originally the townships that were in each of those counties was just one big township for the entire county. And then as population grew, they divided it up. So the next phase of Eaton County's development was that it became the township of Bellevue. And then following that, the southeast quarter of the county was organized into the township of Eaton by an act of the legislature that was approved in February of 1842. And the present township of Eaton Rapids was organized and the first township meeting hall was held at the house of a man by the name of Hamlin. Now, the government records showed seven purchases of land within the township in 1835 and 46 by 1836. Few of those actually became settlers in Eaton County. And I think that was common across southeast and southwest Michigan. People would buy the land cheaply, by going to the land office and filing a claim without ever having visited the region. And then they changed their plans or they never were able to just arrive. And then so the land uh, became available to others or they were just doing it as sort of a land speculation thing. And, hey, I'll just go pour some money into a bunch of land out there without going to look at it. And someone will come along and uh, offer me a few dollars more if I hold it. And I think a lot of that was going on in the early settlement years. So the government records show that there were seven purchases of land within the township in 1835. Johnson Montgomery is credited with settling there in September of 1836 as he came during that time and began improvements on his land. And he made his home with his brother named John. And they lived across the road from their land, and thus they were not legally a resident on their own land. So the first actual resident within the limits of the present township of Eaton Rapids 
was John E. Clark, and he located in the section number 20 on February 11th, 1837. And there was a brief autobiography of Johnson Montgomery that was written during that time. And he was of Scotch-Irish descent, and his parents came to the country the year before he was born in 1806. And it was the same year that his brother John was born. And he lived with his parents at different places in New York until he was 21 years old. And then he married when he was 23 years old, just before 1836. And then he started on his journey to Michigan. They had three children with them. And this is quoted directly from his autobiography of the experience, which is kind of interesting, and it gives you a lot of insight into the pioneer experience back in the day. And like I've said before many times on this podcast, this was a common experience from a lot of the settlers, but every one of them that took the time to write down the experience independently gives us a little bit more of a personal insight into their day-to-day experiences during that time in 1836. So here's what he says. He says, We started with two yoke of oxen, bringing our family and all our household goods in one wagon. At Buffalo, we went on board of a steamer to Detroit. And after leaving that place, it was almost impossible to proceed through the interminable mud. In about five days, we arrived at Dexter, having encountered many difficulties. Here, we were joined by my brother, Robert. After leaving Dexter, we found it very difficult to proceed, fording streams and wading through mire holes. While fording Portage River, the wagon became fastened in the mire. Brother Robert went two miles to get a team to help draw the wagon out of the mire. While he was gone, I waded to my waist in mud and water and carried my wife and children and some of our goods to dry land. When the team arrived, we fastened one end of a long pole to the wagon tongue and hauled it out of the mire. As we proceeded west, we found it still more difficult to proceed. We found it would be necessary to camp out one night and... We accordingly procured a sufficient quantity of provisions for such an event, but with no shelter save the canopy of heaven. We were obliged to turn the cattle loose at night to feed, and great was our disappointment in the morning to find our oxen were missing. Following their tracks, I immediately started to find them, which I did after traveling as fast as possible, 14 miles. Two hours before sunset, I returned with them to the wagon. Brother John had heard we were coming not far away, and during my search for the cattle, he had been in the camping place and had very kindly taken my family and a portion of my goods and carried them to his house. I arrived there about 11 o'clock the same night. We soon moved into a shanty just vacated by a Mr. Tolls, where we were obliged to hang up blankets instead of doors. And in place of window glass, we used greased paper to let in the light. We remained here until nearly springtime, 1837, before any boards could be procured to add to our comfort. We felt this to be quite a severe introduction to pioneer life. Still, we were not disheartened. 
As soon as we moved into the shanty, I was obliged to return to Dexter to purchase provisions, which were difficult to obtain at any price. Pork was $44 a barrel and flour $14. Contrast this with the prices two years later when we had produce to sell. Wheat was $0.44 cents a bushel, but no cash, corn 12 and one and a half cents, and a pork one and a half cents a pound. These prices were partly due to scarcity and then abundance, but largely to the fact that very cheap money was abundant in 1836. But after the panic of 1837 and 38, money was practically unknown. We could generally tell how long a man had been in the state. The second year, he was obliged to wear his best coat every day. The third year, he had to cut off the coattails to mend the sleeves. A few of us built a shanty and supported a school, but it was four or five years before a district was organized and a schoolhouse was built. And that was the end of his little anecdote from his diary. Now, Mr. Montgomery's first wife died in June of 1863, having borne him nine children. Some of them became highly honored by the state and the nation. He married a second wife, Mrs. Nancy Kingman, in May of 1867. He died 16 years later when he was 77 years old. Now, John E. Clark, who was really the first settler, or the second as you may choose to count it, settled in the west part of town and found no road near his land and no neighbor nearer than the Wall Settlement over in Eaton. He relates that wild game was very abundant and even bears a nuisance. Once hearing a hog squeal, he followed the sound and found a very large bear worrying that hog. As Clark approached the bear, the bear dropped the hog and turned upon him. He retreated into a small tree and kicked the bear's nose and then called to his hired man to come and shoot and wound the bear. A few days later, he heard a hog squeal. Once again, he took his gun and pursued and shot and killed the bear. It proved to be the same large old gray bear with a kicked nose. Another man settled in the land around Section 2 of Eaton Rapids, and his name was Simon Darling, and he came with his wife and three children. And he arrived in November of 1837. And he also had a bit of a diary that he kept of his experiences. And here's what he wrote. I had a good yoke of oxen, and the first that ever was driven over what was called the Lansing Road. The second and third days of our journey, it rained constantly, and we were saturated. Streams were greatly swollen. At Leslie, a man told me the best place to ford Whitley Creek. We prepared for emergency. My wife climbed to the top of a chest which was quite high, and put the children in a wash tub on the extreme top of the load. The oxen swam, and I waded to the further shore and then pushed onward. The next night, we reached John Montgomery's home, the seventh after leaving Dexter. The next day, we started down the river and reached our land on Section 12, where our life of toil, of sunshine, and shadow commenced in good earnest. My wife was in this woods six months before she saw a white woman. The Indians were settled all around, but were quiet and sociable. 
The wolves regaled us with their musical talent, which was extremely wonderful at times. By the way, we went, it was seven miles around to Mill at Eaton Rapids. About four o'clock a.m. I started and would usually reach home by dark. In 1841, my wife went east for three months, taking two of the youngest children and leaving two with me. I had my hands full. So what he was talking about there was that he had to go to the nearest mill to sell his grain or get anything uh, ground in the mill. And it was basically an all-day trip. And um, he had to start at 4 a.m. in the morning so that he could be home by sunset. And he continued... One night, I was awakened by Indians making a terrible fuss. I dressed hastily and went out to learn the cause. An Indian told me the soldiers were after them to take them away off. General Cass had made a treaty with the Indians who were to remove them beyond the Mississippi. When the time came, they refused to budge. Some ran away, some went peaceably, others fought. In 1841, we put up a schoolhouse strictly in keeping with our humble ways. It was built of logs with a roof of troughs. A favorite pastime of the children was chasing woodchucks from the excavation of these same logs. We hired a teacher, Miss Cornell, and paid her the salary of a dollar a week. Bears were quite plenty, and we used to tell the children to make a noise while going to frighten the bears away. It is needless to say that the injunction was never disregarded. Bears were abundant. At one time, going to the river with my little boys, we espied five of them quietly feeding upon acorns. A neighbor named Grovenberg trapped many of them with an immense trap weighing 80 pounds. He was skillful setting this and skillful in tracking a bear where he had dragged it away, as they sometimes dragged it many miles. I once ran suddenly upon an immense bear. He reared to meet me. I struck his nose with a heavy club and yelled terrifically. We both ran in opposite directions. Our life was not all hardship. We were a social people and clung to each other in privation or plenty. At the first, I had no potatoes. Branch and myself, being at John Montgomery's, we said we might each have two bushels of potatoes if we could carry them home. We eagerly accepted and carried them a distance of six miles. They didn't seem heavy. We were so glad to get them. Fabrics for clothing were sold at extremely high prices. Men would buy buckskin of the Indians and make them into breeches. They were very durable, but in some respects, peculiar. A neighbor had a pair, but when soaked, they stretched as to impede his progress. He cut them off. In the evening, sitting before the fireplace, they shrunk beyond account. His good wife made him take a pilgrimage to the woods while she spliced them for a more respectable length. In 1849, we moved into our new framed house. As we looked back over our early years in the wilderness, we can perhaps claim as much sunshine as shadow in the past. So that was a, an interesting account of that man's experience. So we'll continue with some of the other early pioneers. B.F. Mills from Heartland, Vermont, settled in Eaton Rapids in August of 1837 when the village contained but three shanties. Willis Bush settled there in 1836. 
and Philip Gilman in 1838. Henry Shaw, a native of Vermont, had taught school and began the practice of law in Ohio. Because of failing health, he was advised to get outdoors and go west. In the fall of 1842, he came to... Eaton County with 850 sheep. These he sold in the vicinity of Eaton Rapids, Charlotte, and Vermontville. Previously to this, there had not been 200 sheep in Eaton or Barry counties. He purchased lands in Eaton Rapids and ever after looked upon them as his home. Mr. Shaw was ever prominent in the county, and in 1855, he was sent to the legislature, where he at once took a prominent position. He introduced and carried through many important measures. In fact, very few men have been more useful in that body. He was again elected in 1857, and then was made Speaker of the House. In 1865, he was again elected. He also held many other offices of trust and responsibility. He served with distinction in the Civil War, and he was always very proud of the young lawyers he trained in his office, including O.M. Barnes, I.M. Crane, M.V. Montgomery, O.F. Rice, and Anson Bronson. The fertile soil of the plains and of the timbered land together with the improved water power aided in the rapid development of this town. In 1844, there were 89 resident taxpayers in the township. It seems that the early records of elections have been lost or destroyed, but since 1850, there have been elected supervisors. James Galley, W.W. Crane, R.H. King, Rufus Hale, N.J. Seeley, and D.B. Hale, and many others. Some of these have been several times elected. James Gallery was supervisor at intervals for more than 30 years. In 1875, James Gallery wrote an extended narrative, historical and autobiographical, from which I'm about to read you. And it is another interesting first-hand account of his own experiences. He says, In 1836, my father and I in New York State accepted Horace Greeley's advice and moved west. We first landed at Detroit, returned to Toledo, and thence to Adrian. For public land and a permanent home, we were advised to seek the Grand River country. Arriving at Jacksonburg, as Jackson was called back then, we then arranged with a professional land looker to secure for us a quarter section of most desirable land, heavily timbered. Late the next spring, we received a duplicate for the land said to be about two miles from Spicer's Mill. Father and I started at once and on the 17th of August, 1837, arrived at this place, now called Eaton Rapids. The first blow had been struck that summer by Spicer, Hamblin, and Darling, who had, the year before, built a sawmill at Spicersville. There were then about three buildings in the place. The dam across Spring Brook was partially built. The frame for the gristmill was up. There was not a bridge across any stream there. The three families here at that time were Amos Spicer, Benjamin Knight, and C.C. Darling. Samuel Hamblin at that time lived at Spicerville. We saw our land one and one and a half miles from here and were well pleased and returned home. We returned about November 1st and went into the house of Lawrence Howard, where we rolled up the logs for a house of our own, 12 by 24 feet, and drew boards from Spicerville for doors and floor. I built the door, also a chimney of stone, sticks, and clay, not artistic, but our own, and filled with average enjoyment. About the time Amos Hamlin built here a slab 
blacksmith's shop. John Montgomery had raised one crop of wheat, and from him we purchased 25 bushels at $1.25 a bushel. There were no grist mills nearer than Jackson, but in January 1838 our mill was started. February seemed the coldest month I'd ever known, but March warmed up beautifully, and on its last day I planted potatoes. During the summer, the first store was built by Benjamin Knight. The following winter, I ran the grist mill and boarded with Mr. Knight. About that time, the township was organized and a post office established. In 1840, I chopped, logged, split rails, and all kinds of pioneer labor, but found it not to my taste. I practiced milling for several years. And in the summer of 1842, our village took its first important stride towards greatness. A dam was built across the Grand River, and a race dug to combine water power of the two streams. The mill was enlarged and improved. Two churches were built, although not complete until long after. This year, too, I think Hamlin's Hotel was enlarged. We soon had two or three asheries, which did a large business in black salts, pot, and pearl ashes, and salaritus. This was a very important industry for the farmers who were clearing land had ashes to sell. In 1844, a carding mill was erected, and in the summer of 1846, a foundry. In the spring of 1847, my health failing, I looked for a more healthful occupation, and thinking a foundry would suit me, I at once bought out Mr. Spencer, and soon after, I took charge of the business, but without any experience in the business. And that was the end of his little autobiographical note. And he signed it James Gallery. So the post office was established in Eaton Rapids between 1837 and 1838. And Benjamin Knight became the first postmaster. In 1839, the place was still very small. The frame of the old Eaton Rapids Hotel was built in that season. The Morgan House was built in 1841-1842 by Horace Hamlin. And in 1849, by actual count, the entire number of shingled-roofed buildings in the village was 36. By 1859, the Board of Supervisors of Eaton County incorporated the village, as they were at that time authorized to do, by Act of the Legislature. April 15, 1871, it was enlarged and reincorporated. On November 4, 1841, Henry Frank was hired to teach the school for four months, at $23 a month. April 13, 1842, it was voted to have school five and one-half months by a female teacher. Harriet Dixon taught 15 weeks at $1.50 a week. November 21, 1842, Bird Norton was hired to teach for four months at $15 a month. And then in May of 1843, Eliza Goodspeed was hired to teach five months at 11 shillings a week. And there's a whole list of other teachers that they list here, but that kind of gives you an idea of some of the wages of some of the early teachers way back in the day. And they eventually voted to raise money for a new schoolhouse in 1853, and they built it. And then in 1870, that schoolhouse was too small, and they voted to raise money for a larger one. And I'll close this episode out with this final anecdote from the author of this chapter on the history of Eaton County. He says that within a period of 10 years, Eaton Rapids had become famous on account of her mineral wells and the wonderful cures which their waters had wrought. And to judge by the testimonials volunteered 
Some of them were indeed wonderful. So that concludes the story of the early pioneer founding and some of the early pioneers of Eaton Rapids and Eaton Rapids Township. And I find a lot of those stories to be incredibly fascinating because it gives you the individual experiences of each of the pioneers. And I'm sure that there's a lot that they didn't write down because it was so common to them at the time. But just what they did record was interesting to us as we read it 150 years later. They were certainly a very hardy people to travel across a great distance with your family in a wagon and oxes and have to deal with every situation that came up. There was no calling of help on a telephone. There was no uh, chance anybody was going to come and rescue you if something bad went wrong. You had to work yourself uh, out of any situation that came up, including walking 14 miles to find your oxen. That was an interesting story. Of course, dragging through the mud and fording the rivers, all very hard and difficult pioneer experiences that they endured and having to have your wife set on top of the wagon on top of with the kids in a uh, basin at the very top so that you could cross the river that's kind of an interesting experience unto itself so a lot of fascinating stories i hope you enjoyed it if you liked today's episode please be sure to like subscribe and uh, leave a review on whatever app that you are listening on and if you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me at michaeldelaware.com. I'm always happy to hear from my listeners. And be sure to get your tickets for the event that I am doing at the end of this month on Oak Hill Cemetery. I'll be doing that with Dave Eddy and Jim Jackson, who have both been guests on my podcast before. And we're going to be talking about Oak Hill Cemetery and some of the stories of some amazing people that lay at rest in that cemetery and giving you some fun and interesting history at the same time. It should be a lot of fun. It's a fundraiser for the Battle Creek Regional History Museum, um, which is at 307 West Jackson Street in Battle Creek. And I'll put the links to where you can get tickets in the show note descriptions of this episode. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and we explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past. Thank you for listening.